We've seen an increase of about 50% in the share of elected officials that are facing charges of any kind, and roughly a doubling in the number of elected officials that are facing serious charges. Welcome to Vox Dev Talks. My name is Tim Phillips. All over the world, you'll hear people complain that politicians are crooks. But in India, 9% of legislators face charges for murder, kidnapping, rape or armed robbery. Would giving voters more information about the criminal charges against candidates change who gets elected? Well, that's what a recent experiment's tried to find out. And one of the economists who conducted it, Yusuf Negers of the University of Michigan, joins us today to tell us about this experiment and the effect it had on who voted and for who they voted. Yusuf, welcome to VoxDev Talks. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Perhaps we shouldn't need to explain this, but are there good economic reasons that elected politicians should not be criminals? Yeah, that's a reasonable question, because on one hand, it could be that you know, criminally charged candidates tend to be more likely to have other characteristics that make them, say, effective leaders or maybe better able to implement good policies that down the line will actually be beneficial for economic growth or whatever your metric of interest is. I think luckily for us, there's some recent work by Nishith Prakash, University of Connecticut, and it actually shows that the election of criminally charged politicians to state assemblies in India negatively impacts economic performance and actually also public goods provision is proxied by the building of rural roads. So there's moral aversion to having politicians with serious criminal charges in office. It does seem that there's at least some economic rationale as well. Can you give us a little bit more detail of how many legislators legislators in India are criminals or have been accused of serious crimes? Sure. If we think about the current elections that are going on right now in India and that are staggered over seven phases, and we look at the first few phases, it turns out that about 12% of those candidates are facing serious criminal charges and about 50% more say that they're facing criminal charges of any type. You know, if we look back at the previous general elections in 2014, at the people who were actually elected, you know, about 20% of those legislators faced serious charges, and about 50% more, again, faced charges of any type. And I think it's also worth noting these proportions have actually been increasing over time. So if we look back to 2004, we've seen an increase of about 50% in the share of elected officials that are facing charges of any kind, and roughly a doubling in the number of elected officials that are facing serious charges. And if we hone in on the state that our study is focusing on, Uttar Pradesh or UP, about a quarter of elected officials facing serious charges and about 50% facing charges of any kind. And, you know, there's been growth over time. You'd think that having serious criminal charges against you would be disqualifying in any election, even to stand. So how is it that that number seems to be going up? So I think there are two categories of explanation at this point. I think they're both probably correct for different segments of the Indian population. So, I mean, the first category of explanation put forward by Milan Vaishnav at the Carnegie Endowment for National Peace suggests that a lot of voters are actually knowledgeable about candidates' criminal backgrounds and that candidates are actually playing up their criminal backgrounds. And the reason that they may still support those candidates is they have some sort of strategic rationale to do so. You know, if you're in an Indian setting where you potentially had social and ethnic divisions, maybe criminality is actually a good signal of credibility for voters of certain types that if they elect this individual, is going to be willing to do what he needs to to protect constituents of the same type and also maybe provide them patronage. So I think in other words, some voters may want a strongman type candidate in place representing their interests. On the other side, there's some work that suggests, and our experiment is more in this vein of testing this idea, that some segment of voters may actually just lack credible information on candidates' backgrounds, including their criminal charge and 
conviction history, and they would punish candidates that they knew had criminal charges or convictions if they were fully informed. And we might think that these information constraints are particularly important in rural areas where you have lower literacy rates and probably lower penetration from television, radio, and newspapers that might otherwise share this information. You know, there's actually some recent work by Jeff McManus and Abhijit Banerjee, Rohini Pandey, and others that shows actually in the state of UP, they run some vignette experiments that actually demonstrate that, you know, some voters do have an aversion to candidate criminality. So I think that it's not that one of these explanations or the other has to be correct and the other one is wrong, but that they're probably both correct for different portions of the population. Your hypothesis, as I understand it, is that if voters were better informed, then they may well punish criminal candidates. That's the experiment that uh, you have conducted, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So what we were doing was thinking about the the state of Uttar Pradesh, which has you know quite a large poor and rural population. So they might be exactly the sorts of people that we think may suffer information constraints. And they were having their state assembly elections in early 2017. And, you know, you have this very large, poor and rural population. It turns out that UP has some of the highest mobile phone penetration, even in rural areas across India. Thinking about these things together, my co-authors, Siddharth George and Sarika Gupta and I kind of realized this could be a good setting to test whether you could use mobile phone messaging as a channel through which to provide information on candidate criminal charges, both their number and type, and then try to see if using a randomized control trial, whether that leads to downstream impacts on the vote shares received by candidates with different levels of criminality or criminal charges, and if you actually see differences in overall turnout. I guess then we were also interested in whether giving that information alone would be enough, or if you might see a bigger bite if you couple that information about candidate criminality with other messages, say messages perhaps meant to spur coordination or messages that remind voters that they may not want to vote strictly along religious or caste lines. We ended up sending these different types of messages via voice and text messages to about half a million mobile phone subscribers across a few thousand randomly selected villages in the fourth phase of the UP elections in 2017. Now, there are some practical problems to overcome here. And the first one is, how do you make sure that you are reporting the charges against the candidates accurately and fairly? Right. No, that's a really excellent point and one that you want to be careful about working in this area. And so I think we benefited from the fact that in 2003, the Indian Supreme Court issued a ruling that actually made it mandatory for all candidates who are running for state or national legislative elections to file affidavits that actually have uh, provide details on a number of different dimensions, including, good for our purposes, uh, their criminal histories, right? And so it's also the case that if candidates misreport, they're liable to face penalties from the government. And we can also think that opposition parties in the media have an interest as well in verifying that that information is correct. So I think in general, people feel like that information is out there in an accurate manner. Though I should mention for our experimental design, that's actually not crucial. But we do believe that there's pretty high quality in those reports. And that's the general sense in the Indian context. Given that the government gets that out there, you know, it's made publicly available online. The challenge for us was that that only happens about 12 days before each phase of the election. So we definitely had to scramble to get that information incorporated and our messages recorded in time and get them to the mobile phone companies. And back to your point about fairness, we were trying to think carefully about this. We made sure that we were reporting the number of charges and the type for each of the major party candidates. And it turned out, you know, those parties ended up winning the vast majority of seats in that election. So I think something more like 95% of seats were won by those individuals. And so we felt, given the limitations of that medium, as long as we were presenting all the information for all the candidates from those parties, that that was fair given our purposes and at this scale. So that was where we came down things. Also, you chose 
mobile phones as a way to put out this information. As you say, there is a lot of phone penetration now, but you clearly need the cooperation of the phone companies and I assume the authorities to be able to send these messages. Yes, that's definitely right. So we benefited from the fact that the government wanted this information to be out there, right? You know, hence the Supreme Court ruling, the Election Commission of India, I think is happy to have this information being spread. You know, they haven't had any problem with the existence of NGOs putting this up on the web, etc. So on the government side, there was no challenge. In contrast, we definitely faced difficulties with the mobile phone companies that we ended up partnering with. So early on, we sent them example scripts uh, for the sorts of messages we'd be sending out. So it was, should have been very clear to them early on that we'd be talking about criminal charges. I'm guessing maybe they didn't look so carefully and then very near the beginning of our experiment, they realized what was going on and <laughs> essentially tried to pull out of the contract entirely. We were able to negotiate with them. So we were going to run the experiment in all of the phases from phase four onward. They were not willing to do that, but we were able to get them to let us run the experiment in phase four only. So we had to sort of reallocate our sample to be all in phase four. And they were potentially concerned about reprisals from politicians being unhappy that they were involved in this sort of thing. On a positive note, it turns out that they've not seen any negative repercussions of this experiment. So maybe that would give us a precedent to point to in the future if people wanted to scale this up going forward. I mean, I wouldn't mention it's totally possible that if you scale this up, then parties would notice and potentially cause problems for the mobile phone companies. But at least we know we're not yet at that level with this level of experiment. So maybe we'll be more successful in the future. Nevertheless, despite all these problems, you did manage to try different treatments on different villages, I believe it is. How did they differ? What sort of treatments did you try? So as compared to control areas that just received no messages at all in the run-up to elections, we had four different treatment arms. So in each treatment arm, mobile phone subscribers in a given village would receive one text message and one voice message two days before the election. And we had different content across our treatment arms. So the first arm was what we call our basic information treatment that encouraged voters to think carefully in their choice of candidate. And then for the major party candidates, we gave them the name, the party symbol, and the number of charges faced by that candidate, whether any of those charges were serious, and if they were serious, more specifically, what were they? Say it was a murder, attempted murder, aggravated assault, etc. Then we had two other information-related treatment arms where we added on to the basic treatment. And in the first, what we did was we provided some, uh, what we we're calling our coordination content. So we also just let the mobile phone subscribers know that not only were they receiving that information, but actually large numbers of other individuals in their area were also receiving that information with the hope of potentially spurring them to coordinate and maybe see bigger differences in voting as a result. And then the third information treatment arms, the basic treatment, plus a statement to voters that they you know, may want to reevaluate voting solely on religious or caste lines. What we were thinking was that if you point out a potential drawback of the status quo method of decision making, then that may make them more likely to uptake and incorporate this candidate criminality information in their decision making. And then our fourth treatment was actually not providing candidate criminality information, but we again encouraged people to think carefully about their choice of candidate, but then also encouraged households to have their female members get out and vote. UP within India has relatively low female turnout. I think it's maybe the 32nd out of 35 states in terms of female turnout. Do you know from the, the voters who receive these messages that they didn't confuse these messages which you carefully try to ensure were neutral, politically neutral, they didn't confuse those with ordinary political campaigning? 
the best that we were able to do, maybe going forward, someone else will have a better idea about how to do an even better job, was that to distinguish our message from party campaigning and propaganda, at the beginning of every message, we explicitly stated that these were being sent on the behalf of our implementing partner, the Center for Governance and Development India. Uh, and we also stated that that's a nonprofit, nonpartisan political watchdog organization. I think one might reasonably question how likely are voters to believe that. I think that's harder to know. Uh, and we didn't have the means to run a follow-up survey to better understand exactly how they were interpreting our messages. But I think if anything, if that were the case, that's going to attenuate the effects of our treatments. And so given that we do see these changes in voter behavior, I think of those as maybe a lower bound for what these treatments can do if you're really able to convince everyone that they're coming from a credible source. Because what we end up seeing is that voters do react to the information provision Candidates with the most severe charges, so murder charges, they do see a 7% drop in their votes, while their opponents that are shown to have no criminal charges actually see a similarly sized increase in votes. And then given that you tend to have fewer murder charged candidates than clean candidates, this actually combined leads to an overall increase in turnout of about 1.5%. Big picture, Yusuf. If you scaled up these results across the state, for example... Can we say that different people would have been elected? Would it have changed the election result? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're we're actively in progress in working on that. So we're gathering data on the candidate criminal charges for the rest of the state. It's readily available online. We just need to pull it and clean it up, combine that with voting data to use in some counterfactual calculations. We're interested in exactly that question that if we scaled up this messaging campaign fully across the state, would we have seen the identity of winning candidates change? So while I can't say anything precisely at this point, what I can say is that 20% of these 400 or so races from the 2017 elections had a winning margin that was within three percentage points. And that's roughly in line with the vote share size impacts that we see as a result of some of our treatments. So I think it's not unreasonable to think that our estimates are going to end up suggesting that some races would have seen who won change. I was very interested to see that what seems to me to be a, a not particularly strong message had a huge effect, which is stressing that other voters were receiving the same information. Why is that? We're in progress on trying to unpack mechanisms for the different effects. As you mentioned, the coordination treatment seems to have had the strongest impacts. I mean, I can say that our motivation for including that treatment were thoughts along the lines of, look, there may be some voters for whom you give them the candidate criminality information and they'd like to change their vote in response. But the fact remains that they may not think their vote alone changing is going to make a difference. And they may have concerns about potential retribution for voting against criminally charged eventual winner who has local level political agents who keep good track of who was voting and how. And so they may not view it as worth it, even though they'd like to change their vote. But if you give them this additional coordination content together with the candidate criminality information, as well as the information that others are receiving it, that may be enough for them to have a higher perception that their voting could change who actually wins elections mm. and make it worth it for them to change their vote. You also sent a message, you've mentioned this before, urging voters to break their habit of ethnic voting. Can you explain a little bit more about this for people who aren't familiar with voting patterns in Indian elections? So I think particularly in the state of UP, there's a sense that ethnically motivated voting is quite common. So if you're a rural voter, you don't have much information, and it's hard for you to know what candidate quality really is. 
you may be inclined to, as a heuristic to vote for people from the same, say, religious or caste group as you, or maybe your local level leaders have always, you know, over time just told you that's the way that you should vote. And so we thought that by coupling our information with just a sentence or two that point out that that may not be the ideal way in which to choose your candidate, it might make it more likely that people decide to tweak their decision-making process and incorporate things like candidate criminality when they're thinking about how to vote. I mean, as it turned out, however, we don't actually observe this treatment as having a stronger impact. Now, if this has an effect, and we would consider it to be a beneficial effect, should in future this sort of information distribution be left to NGOs, as in your experiment, or surely this is something a government institution should be doing? I imagine there are positive and negatives to that. Right, yeah, as you pointed out, there's probably a good bit of variation how you want to do this based on the specific context that you're in. First, I think it is critical that the government ensures that accurate data on candidate characteristics like criminal charges and convictions are available for the full set of candidates running in elections. And I think that the state is generally going to be uniquely placed to make sure that that happens and NGOs wouldn't be able to guarantee that. Now, I think if you have that in place, if there exists NGOs that are credibly impartial and have the capability of spreading information at large scale, maybe there's no particular reason that it needs to be the government that does so. If the government is at least going to make that information available, uh, we have a nice example of that with the Association for Democratic Reforms, NGO, so political watchdog group that actually was responsible for filing the litigation that ultimately led to that Supreme Court ruling for candidate affidavits. And then they led the charge on taking that information and putting it on the web so it could more easily be reached by the public. So I think if you have someone like ADR or our partner organization were at bigger scale uh, and had the funding and willingness to do so, you could maybe hand it off to them to get involved in messaging type campaigns. Now, I think a challenge is going to be how do you overcome the inherent limitations to the amount of information you can stick in these sorts of messaging campaigns as compared to a full-fledged website? And, you know, maybe one workaround is going to be that Indians in large scale now have mobile phones. And I think they're increasingly having smartphones as opposed to just basic mobile phones. So perhaps you could just stick in some summary information and then a link that they could then click through on their smartphones to explore in more detail if they so wish. Now, I think in other settings, you just may not have an NGO like ADR in existence to be able to run with things. You may want the government to step up or perhaps even the government to fund the creation of some NGOs who can then independently function in terms of being an election watchdog group. Do you think, Yusuf, that if everybody had this information and there was a lot more of it, the impact would diminish? Because at the moment, it's something that people have never seen before. If it was used for everyone in every election, then it might become part of the background music. And also there would be an incentive for parties who wanted to cover up the criminal behaviour of their candidates to provide disinformation, maybe fake news, maybe something intentionally to confuse voters. And so therefore the impact would not be so great in the future. That's certainly a valid concern. So if you bring this to scale and with the passage of time, parties are going to be more and more likely to, re to react to the fact that the situation is out there. And what they may potentially do is try to drown it out with other content. Mm. Or like you pointed out, you know, maybe they're just going to put out outright fake news. I don't think our study can really speak to that right now. But one might think that partnering with a highly recognized, reputable organization, maybe like the ADR, and attaching them to a message, maybe that'll help fight dilution, that 
they have a unique place in the Indian psyche that would lead them to not be washed out by party messages. I think that's a question that remains to be to be thought about. I mean, in terms of the fake news, I think that's challenging as well, right? I think that's a, that's a tougher thing to deal with. Interestingly enough, one of my colleagues here at the Ford School, Brendan Nyhan, and some of his co-authors now have an in-progress experiment going on in the 2019 Indian elections related to exactly this, these issues of fake news, WhatsApp messaging, sending out fact checks to counter fake news. So in a few months, maybe that could help inform that side of bringing this to scale. Yeah, maybe we'll try and get them on Voxdev Talks as well to talk about it. Yusuf, thank you very much. No, thank you, Tim. This is all set out in a, a working paper at the moment. It's called Coordinating Voters Against Criminal Politicians, Evidence from a Mobile Experiment in India, and you can find that to download. The authors are Siddharth George, Sarika Gupta and Yusuf, and it's uh, short, it's very clear, and it's certainly very thought-provoking. Now, Yusuf, are you going to be following this work up? Are you going to be doing more of this? So we are in progress on looking into the treatment arm that was related to female turnout. So nicely, the Indian government provides polling data uh, separately by males and females. It's a little bit messy. So we're cleaning that up to see whether that female turnout message had any bite. And I think that, you know, we're potentially trying to scale up or try other messages in different election cycles as well. Well, good luck with your data cleaning. This has been a Voxdev Talk. You can find more of our episodes at voxdev.org and don't forget to subscribe to Voxdev Talks on your podcast platform.